This is the Return to Order Moment with Edwin Benson. Bringing you insights, analysis, and information for a culture in crisis. Shifting sin to other shoulders. The liberal way to avoid responsibility for their own failures. For decades, the left has peddled its own bizarre definition of freedom. It is a freedom that denies personal responsibility. In the real world, there can be no freedom without personal responsibility. They deny personal responsibility while asserting that individual freedom is absolute. This is impossible. To give any person license to do whatever they want inevitably infringes on the rights of others. I cannot give you the ability to take whatever you want without taking away rights from those who already own the object of your desires. No one can have rights unless he respects the rights of others. In the process of shifting blame from individuals, they shift it to their enemies, society in general, Conservatives, business, and especially the church are singled out for their scrutiny. Today, the Return to Order moment looks at three aspects of the left's attempt to shift responsibility to places that it does not belong. In the first essay, Why Liberals Fear the Rumblings of a Jealous God, Mr. John Horvat describes the liberals' greatest terror. The collapse of our liberal order is upon us. As expected, Many liberals assign the blame to Christian conservatives. We are the ones who are forever waging cultural war that prevents society from progressing, diversifying, and becoming more inclusive. We are the ones who use culture as an identity marker to impose our quote-unquote illiberal agenda upon America. These outlandish accusations prove that there is a reaction to the nation's moral decadence. There is a principled opposition to procured abortion, the intrinsic evil of LGBTQ lifestyles, and Marxist critical race theory. Liberals unjustly label this principled opposition as rigid. Then, legitimate as this faithful resistance is, they lump it together with crazy ideologies linked to racism, nationalism, and identitarianism. Their next step is to weave fantastic conspiracy theories to fuel their rage against those who dare to oppose moral decay. What enrages liberals most is the entrance of traditional religion, especially Christianity, into the debate. It is a powerful force because it implies a moral order that opposes the liberals' immoral disorder. It assumes a loving God that created this order to ensure our happiness. Religion's quote-unquote backwardness opposes this liberal misguided notion of the evolution of history to ever greater progress. Thus, the liberal left does everything possible to avoid a moral debate by portraying religion as an authoritarian tool for dictators, Islamic terrorists, and totalitarian regimes. The New York Times quote-unquote moderate writer David Brooks goes so far as to include communist China as a quote-unquote religious regime because it adapts some Confucianist ideas to attack Western decadent and quote-unquote sissy mannerisms. Thus, the debate shifts back to identity politics, Hegelian metaphysics, 
and anti-racist babble that liberals love to use to frame the debate. They will never discuss the need for Christianity and an objective moral order. Liberalism only tolerates religion that follows its rules. The rise of traditional Christianity enrages them because it breaks their rules. In a liberal order, religion is supposed to be limited to personal experience. It should stay out of politics and culture. Indeed, modernity has treated religions no better than the Romans. The latter covered their bases by putting the gods of conquered peoples in the pantheon where they might all be worshipped. At the same time, its Bacchanalian society partied its way into moral rot and ultimate disillusion. In our present liberal society, religion is likewise sidelined. Each religion is like an idol tucked away in a constitutional pantheon where it can do no harm to the general public. As long as religion follows these liberal rules, the party can keep on going. That is not to say that Christianity, even in its pantheon form, has not positively affected society. The liberal order has coasted a long time on the vast social capital of a vaguely Christian moral code. This Christian influence secured the conditions for order and material progress throughout our modernity. However, that social capital is now exhausted, and there is no regenerative force that liberalism can call upon to bring about a return to order. Liberals solve the problem by calling for more liberalism. They blame Christian conservatives for breaking the rules and spoiling the party. They demand ever greater reforms of depravity and ignore the chaos of a society that is falling apart. There is one problem with pantheons. The only God, creator of heaven and earth, refuses to dwell there. Thus, there is always the possibility that a Pauline voice might cry out in our postmodern wilderness that it is time to topple modern idols and proclaim the one true God. We might well find ourselves facing the unknown God about whom St. Paul speaks, quote, For passing by and seeing your idols, I found an altar also, on which was written, To the unknown God. What therefore you worship without knowing it, that I preach to you. God who made the world and all things therein, he being Lord of heaven and earth, dwelleth not in temples made with hands. See Acts chapter 17, verses 23 to 24. From the true God who dwelt not in the pantheon came the Catholic Church. From the church came a marvelous Christian civilization that transformed the world. From this same God, we can expect a splendorous future. However, this God does not act like the idols in the pantheon. He does not follow liberal rules. He is a jealous God who will not have false gods before him. Indeed, that is why liberals fear this unknown God who does not fit in their pantheon. They sense that the collapse of the liberal order involves much more than the shattering of a political 
or economic system. They perceive the exhaustion of our atheistic materialism and its inability to satisfy the existential yearning of countless souls who seek something more, but above all, something higher. Likewise, conservatives perceive their reaction as much more than just opposition to our decadence. They are sensitive to the voice of God, calling on them to love and worship the unknown God. The movement to defy the culture reflects a growing thirst for sublimity and a return to the one true God by a sizable majority that seeks Him like the repentant prodigal son. Thus, the polarizing collapse of the liberal order represents movements inside society beyond culture or politics. It involves something so foreign to our modern ways of thinking that we dare not speak about it openly. Both sides sense the rumblings of a jealous, unknown God who now desires to make himself known. The liberals' attempt to avoid personal responsibility invades many aspects of life. Perhaps its greatest force is felt in the justice system. Mr. Horvat gives us several examples of this process as he asks, Why do we blame society for bad personal choices? In a Christian civilization, people are responsible for their acts before God and man. There may be attenuating circumstances that diminish a person's guilt for crimes or destructive actions. However, the final responsibility always lies with the individual. For this reason, life is full of trials and difficulties. Acts have consequences that people of character embrace. Postmodern thought denies personal responsibility while affirming that individual freedom is absolute. Thus, the person is considered free to choose whatever acts gratify the passions. However, any resulting harm must be blamed on society, social structures, and other persons. Everything is systemic in this new, woke world. Nothing is personal save the feelings of those who claim to be hurt. Two recent cases serve to illustrate the postmodern miscarriage of justice. They involve two very different individuals whose acts led to their deaths. However, society is blamed in both cases for failing to prevent the free choices of the perpetrators. The first case involves Los Angeles Angels pitcher Tyler Skaggs. The 27-year-old Skaggs overdosed on oxycodone pills laced with fentanyl on July 1, 2019. He was found dead in a Texas hotel room just before a game. His promising major league career was cut short. However, it seems that the overdose was not Tyler's fault, but his team's. His widow is suing the Los Angeles Angels for negligence. His parents are expected to file a similar suit, seeking damages. The plaintiffs allege that the Angels communication director, Eric Kay, supplied drugs to the pitcher and the team should have taken measures. According to the Los Angeles Times, the wife's lawsuit claims, quote, 
The Angels owed Tyler Skaggs a duty to provide a safe place to work and play baseball. The Angels breached their duty when they allowed Kay, a drug addict, complete access to Tyler. The Angels also breached their duty when they allowed Kay to provide Tyler with dangerous illegal drugs. The Angels should have known that Kay was dealing drugs to the players. Tyler died as a result of the Angels' breach of their duties. Unquote. A supporting affidavit in a criminal suit against Kay quotes DEA Special Agent Jeffrey Lindenberg, stating that without, quote, the fentanyl in Skaggs' system, Skaggs would not have died, unquote. The person who supplied the fentanyl that ended up inside Skaggs' body is irrelevant. The obvious conclusion is that the pitcher would not have died if he had not made the personal choice to swallow the fentanyl-laced pills. The work environment did not force him to kill himself. Moreover, the availability of the drug facilitated the tragedy, but did not cause it. Tyler chose to associate with people who sold him drugs. The pitcher did not complain of a toxic environment, which his addiction made more toxic. Mr. Skaggs bears the responsibility for his plight. The baseball team denied the charges and has called the lawsuit without merit, baseless, and irresponsible. Indeed, if the lawsuit claims are true, then all players on the team can ask for damages for breach of contract. However, the team could also claim a similar breach since the pitcher was engaged in a dangerous addiction that jeopardized his ability to play ball. Drug addiction is a choice that carries the risk of death. However, this tragic death by personal choice has been turned into the demise of a victim of a supposedly toxic work environment. The second case of responsibility denial is even more absurd. It involves the mass shooter, Devin Patrick Kelly, responsible for killing 25 people and wounding 20 others before killing himself in a church in Sutherland Springs, Texas, on November 4, 2017. The former Air Force airman was court-martialed in 2012 for domestic assault on his wife and child. In 2014, he was removed from the Air Force with a bad conduct discharge. However, by an oversight, the Air Force failed to enter the airman's criminal record into the federal background check register, which would have barred him from firearm purchases. This failure enabled the man to buy the firearms used in the 2017 mass shooting. Devin's crime was a terrible personal decision, but it seems, like Tyler Skaggs, the mass murder was not entirely his fault. The families of the victims are suing the Air Force for its negligence. U.S. District Judge Xavier Rodriguez for the Western District of Texas ruled that the Air Force was legally at fault for the Sutherland Spring shooting since Kelly remained eligible to buy the firearms he eventually used for his crime. 
Judge Rodriguez found that the gunman was only 40% responsible for the shooting, while the U.S. government was accountable for 60%. In other words, the government was more at fault than the criminal was. He who pulled the trigger is less responsible than the clerk who forgot to enter his name into a database. One act was conscious and voluntary. The other was accidental and careless. Indeed, one would think that the government had dangled the weapons in the face of the former airman irresistibly. The case assumes that he killed his victims because the government had made these weapons available, not because he was evil. The ruling turned the criminal into a mere accomplice to the Air Force. Not even the death of many individuals moved the judge to consider the shooter's full responsibility. This distorted vision of justice favors the culprit over the victims. It is all too ready to blame the systemic structures inside society for the harm caused by personal choices. A society that blames the system will end up destroying itself. This perspective is fast becoming the norm in defunded police districts and dangerous cities where criminals are not punished and law enforcement is blamed for all social ills. This danger is found in laws that bar the prosecution of shoplifting when the stolen goods are no more than $900 in value. For when criminals face no serious consequences, all disorder becomes possible. The church established a Christian civilization in which people assumed responsibility for their crimes and sins. Such norms favored the common good and domestic peace. It established stable social structures like the Christian family that helped people assume responsibility for their actions. Only a return to a Christian order will bring back the sanity needed for individuals to reject evil choices embrace good ones, and accept the consequences of their actions. Ever since Martin Luther's revolt in 1517, the revolutionary's favorite target has been the church. As the oldest and most widespread of institutions, Holy Mother Church presents a large target for those who want to destroy society. As an organization that inspires and demands morality, it blocks those trying to insert their own deviancy into general society. Mr. Horvath examines one particular offensive situation in his essay, Why Does the Left Accuse the Church in Canada of Its Crimes? Wherever the Church acts, she plays a central role in combating modern errors. Thus, even in these secular times, the Left cannot refrain from its irrational wrath against the Church. Because she exists, even in a state of crisis, the left finds ways to attack, vilify, and calumniate her. If the present problems in the church prove insufficient for these attacks, the left will look to the past. It will conjure up false accusations to frame the church as evil. The recent quote-unquote discovery of the already known locations of the graves of Indian children near Catholic boarding schools in Canada is just the latest smear against the church. The unmarked graves are presented as evidence of supposed cruelty and cultural genocide. The graves prove nothing. 
They attest to the high mortality rate of children back then, not a Catholic model of systemic abuse and killing of children. If anything, they point to the shortcomings in government regulations that mandated such graves. However, the media spread the leftist narrative that the graves point to the church as an instrument of anti-indigenous actions. Critics turn these schools into sites of cultural genocide. Their administrators are convenient culprits since they cannot defend themselves. Media reports support their claims by presenting austere pictures of well-mannered Indian school children in Western clothes as evidence of forced cultural cruelty. This critique of the church reeks of hypocrisy. Leftists shake in rage at the natural deaths of hundreds of children over decades, yet celebrate women's so-called right to choose the killing of tens of thousands unborn and unburied Canadian children, one-fifth of all pregnancies through procured abortion. The same atheist left that cares nothing about Catholic rights erupts in indignant rage in defense of forgotten indigenous rituals. Indeed, what can be said about the present ripped jeans and t-shirt culture that has done much more to deprive present Indians and all peoples of their culture than bygone Catholic schools? Wherever leftist philosophies prevail, their egalitarian principles destroy all culture. Thus, secular liberal governments progressively destroy indigenous cultures, not the church. Communism destroyed Russian culture. Mao annihilated Chinese civilization. Postmodernity is now canceling the surviving remnants of modernity and challenging all cultural identity. Thus, the real target in the Canadian school travesty is the church, which finds herself put on trial because she insisted on being a witness to the truth. Of course, the church is not the colonizing institution now projected in Canada. Indeed, the missionaries always defended the Indians against decadent Western culture influenced by Enlightenment thought. Indian tribes often begged church officials to send quote-unquote black robes to teach them about the one true God. History shows how the church preserved Indian cultures by committing their languages to writing and integrating their customs into Christian civilization. Wherever the church has gone, it has enriched cultures by purging them of harmful elements contrary to natural law. Human sacrifice, cannibalism, slavery, infanticide, and superstition. With her commitment to improving the spiritual good of people, the Church has always enhanced the material welfare of those she evangelizes. She brings schools, universities, agriculture, medical care, and science. The testimony of history is clear even to the most rabid leftists should they desire to acknowledge the truth. The church's real quote-unquote crime is her zeal for souls. The church is persecuted because she wishes to do good to all peoples.
she is hated because she obeyed the Redeemer's great commission, quote, Going therefore, teach ye all nations, baptizing them in the name of the Father and of the Son and of the Holy Ghost, teaching them to observe all things whatsoever I have commanded you. See Matthew chapter 28, verses 19 to 20. The left especially hates the divine mandate because it affirms the role of the church as the guardian of the truth and the path to salvation. From her earliest days, the church brought the light of Christ to peoples, extracting them from the darkness of savage paganism. In the words of St. Remigius to King Clovid and the 6th century Franks he converted, the church told all pagan nations, quote, Burn what you adored and adore what you burned, unquote. Peoples everywhere embrace the church's liberating, not oppressive message of eternal life. The Canadian missions were no different. They took care of the body and the soul of those in their charge. They gave priority to the spiritual over the material, the supernatural over the natural. Those children who died of natural causes were first baptized so that they might be saved. The pictures of first communion ceremonies at the schools used as proof of exploitation actually show the opposite. The church's tender solicitude for their innocent souls. In its present stage of radicalization, the left hates everything connected to the church and Western civilization. Thus, it seeks to destroy quote-unquote Western logic, structures, and anything remotely associated with Christianity. In addition to burning down Catholic churches serving Indian congregations, radical activists are tearing down statues of Queen Victoria, Queen Elizabeth II, and other non-Catholic figures simply because they represent the West. The left wants to suppress the West, which it accuses of cultural genocide. Thus, the church is an obstacle to this process and therefore a prime target of the left's assault. The more decadent and immoral present society becomes, the greater is the church's appeal to those starved of all things spiritual. For this reason, the attacks on the church are ever more intense and focused on destroying her influence everywhere. The Indian Children Grave quote-unquote discovery incident in Canada is merely a pretext to manifest the rage of those who hate the church and all things civilized. However, the most sinister aspect of the present offensive against the Catholic Church in Canada is how it creates an emotional climate that intimidates Catholics. Thus, the left's fury causes Catholics to grovel in the face of these attacks, issuing improper apologies for supposed oppression and crimes. Bishops, priests, and laity trip over each other to see who can express the greatest sorrow. In this way, the left controls the debate inserting the church into its narrative of class struggle. The new church leadership declares itself ashamed and rejects the divine mandate. It timidly suggests that no one needs to be taught and baptized. 
Catholics must never renounce the divine mandate. They should proclaim it from the rooftops. The real culprits in the Canadian case are not past Catholic educators, but modern progressives who have failed the Indian populations with their misguided government programs and fake concern. They want to turn the native peoples into liberal images of themselves. They accuse the Catholics of what they did to the Indians themselves. And now progressives seek to extend their nefarious actions to all Catholics by suppressing the way of salvation. Catholics must not be afraid to denounce the sinister narrative that will thrust the Americans in a downward spiral to neo-barbarism and paganism. This offensive is yet another episode in the long history of the attacks on the indestructible church. In the end, though, the church shall prevail. She always does. This concludes Shifting Sin to Other Shoulders, the liberal way to avoid responsibility for their own failures. Thank you so much for listening. Return to Order, of which this podcast is only a part, strives to be a source of light in a dark and disordered world. Your prayers are appreciated. If you have enjoyed this podcast, we ask you to subscribe and give us a five-star rating with the service through which you are listening to it. Increased subscriptions and high ratings mean that more people will be directed to the Return to Order moment when searching for new podcasts. So, by rating us, you can help Return to Order be more effective. In addition, subscribers gain access to all the previous episodes of the Return to Order moment. We would also like to recommend the book which spells out the motivations behind our work. Mr. John Horvath's book, Return to Order, is available as a free download through our website, www.returntoorder.org, or in printed and recorded form through our bookstore. All rights are reserved. Copyright 2021 by the American Society for the Defense of Tradition, Family and Property, TFP.